So we looked at both the space debris and the active satellites and the inactive satellites, and we built a baseline for 2019. And then we tried to look at the, the trends in launches, how different nation states behave, what they, what they tend to launch, mm. where do they launch those things, how long do they last on orbit, and so on. And then we had to look at the emerging technology. So the, you know, the principal emerging technology are these so-called mega constellations. That's, the, that's the, the big thing. And we all mm. are aware of that now. So the, the big enablers of that is the ability to launch a single rocket body off which you peel 60 odd satellites. And then you've got to populate a single orbital plane mm -hmm. those satellites, spread them out. And then you launch another 60, another 60, another 60. So I dug into the FCC filings for SpaceX and for Blue Origin and for, and, and for a lot of other companies too. What you can see is that in low Earth orbit, so we're talking about sort of 600 kilometers to say 1,500 kilometers off the surface of the Earth, that's the orbital altitude, there'd be something in the next 10 years easily another 12,000 satellites populating mm. those orbits. And that's an absolutely huge number. Now, the, if we can run the, um, the, the films and eventually mm. see them, it's quite shocking, actually. Yeah. And everybody I've shown these simulations to go, how are we going to handle that? Welcome back to another episode of the Cold Star Project. I'm your host, Jason Canigan of uh, Cold Star Technologies. And I'm here with Dr. Professor Merrick Zebart. And uh, he's joining me from London, central London. And I'm super excited to have him on because the more I have learned about him, the more I like him. And we hadn't even met yet because he's a devotee of Richard Feynman, who I also have uh, followed a lot and researched a lot and listened to a lot because there's um, videos of him on YouTube explaining stuff at Los Alamos and <laughs> kind of cool stories and, and him traveling at the, or about to travel at the end of his life to a place in uh, like Russia or Mongolia or something like that and not being able to do it. But uh, he is a, his PhD is in satellite geodesy, which is a new field to me when I first heard about it and astrodynamics. He's a professor of space geodesy, as you might have thought, and director at University College London, uh, I'm going to say this phrase again, Space Geodesy and Navigation Group, which is something that we're going to explore. Um, there's some cool pictures of it online and that, and you've been running that for many years. He's a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, a journal reviewer, winner of several awards, including something called the Tycho Bray Award, not the Tycho Bay Prize, which I found out was a different thing entirely. This was from the Institute of Navigation. So if you are lost, he is probably someone to go talk to to find out where you are. Thanks for being here. Great to be here, Jason. Very nice to meet you too. Thanks awesome. so much. <laughs> and a photography. I forgot about the shared interest in photography too, because that's way down the page here. So let's explain what space geodesy is for the absolute newbie. Let's pretend that uh, people have never heard of it before. Hmm. Well, space geodesy, it's the science and also eventually the engineering of determining the dynamic characteristics of planets. So okay. what we mean by that, we mean things like the gravity field of the planet. We mean things like uh, changing global sea level rise, uh, plate tectonics, the earthquake cycle, those kind of things. And the space component of it means that we use, we do this work by putting spacecraft in orbit around the planet and either kind of bouncing radio waves uh, from the spacecraft down to the planet's surface and back, or by putting sensors onto the planet's surface and monitoring them from space. All right, that is the quick summed up answer. Now, as <laughs> to the actual getting this done, it's a lot more involved and more difficult than that. Uh, I watched a 
a presentation you did way back in 2011 explaining how GPS worked. And the first thing you got into was Einstein and relativity because, well, when the satellite starts moving and the Earth starts moving, uh, they're moving away from each other. So what, what goes on? Let's explain a little about GPS, I guess, and how complex this is and why, why it couldn't have been done in 1920, let's say. Well, okay. So first of all, you need, you need spacecraft in orbit. Mm. You know, that, that's the first thing. So, you know, <laughs> from 1960s onwards, then people started building platforms they could launch into orbit. And the kind of neat thing about being in orbit is that once you've got the thing up there, it mm -hmm. just goes around and around and around, right? You know, it stays in orbit. And so gravity does a great job for us in, in, that, in that respect. The second thing is um, you need some way of ranging between the spacecraft and the Earth. And this is where the, the, the Einstein part comes in, because the way in which it is done is by using clocks. Essentially what you have is a clock in the spacecraft and you have mm -hmm. a clock on the ground and you send a kind of time signal from the spacecraft in orbit saying, okay, my clock reads this at the moment. That kind of flies down through space, reaches the clock on the ground, and the clock on the ground looks at that signal and says, okay, this thing was sent at you know, 12 o'clock and I picked it up two seconds later. So the, the clock on the ground knows the signal's been traveling for a couple of seconds. Now, obviously, it's you know, more like microseconds, but the thing is that the whole ranging concept between the surface of the Earth and a spacecraft in orbit, is, for a great proportion of applications, is based upon using clocks and measuring the time of flight of the signal. So if you know how long the signal's been traveling for, mm -hmm. and you know the speed of propagation, you can work out the range, because basically the speed of propagation times the time of flight give you the distance. Now, all that would work out fine. Right. Except. Except <laughs> those are things like relativistic time dilation. And so uh, Einstein's um, ideas explained that if you had a clock in orbit, you know, whizzing around in space, and it's at a different gravitational potential, you know, it's, it's not on the surface of the Earth, then the clock's going to behave in some strange ways. So actually, things like GPS rely upon uh, relativity as it's the bread and butter of how these things work. You know, if we didn't apply relativistic concepts, you just couldn't navigate your way down to the corner store. It would, you might be able to might find your way to another city, but you would not be able to very quickly, you know, park your car automatically you know, with your Tesla. Right. Yeah, and folks can remember even from high school, no matter what level you got to, I'm sure you remember the uh, relationship between speed, distance, and time, right? And, and we know a couple of those factors here, right? So we could figure out the, the distance. And I remember from your talk, uh, it really struck me that time difference because of the relativity might be something really tiny, a fraction of a second. And yet, if you didn't account for it, the distance was off by like, 11 and a half kilometers or something, I think you said. So no, you definitely <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. That's, right. yeah. that's, that's the, the, the drift after about a, a day. Mm. And so if you didn't take that into account, it would get worse and worse and worse. So actually there's an interesting story about this because when the um, US Air Force first commissioned all this stuff, you know, the Air Force were great drivers of innovation mm. in that respect, but they weren't necessarily convinced that if you put this clock up, up in space, that the relativity would really make that much of a difference. And so they demanded that, you know, up front, the system could be designed so you could turn off these relativistic effects mm. if Einstein was in fact wrong. But, you know, as it turns out, all, not all of Einstein's ideas, but, you know, the, the first order relativistic ones, we couldn't get by without them. So, you know, people like me use that kind of stuff on a daily basis. And ironically, so does everybody else now. We all mm. rely upon those relativistic, relativistic concepts.
All right. Now, I remember at the end of that talk, you said, please don't ask me any hard questions, but I might, my email that struck me is, um, so with this space geodesy, you are measuring the impact of photons on satellites, right? Which would be pushing them around. And the thing that strikes me is I've been studying physics and chaos theory and that since I was about 19 years old. Uh, we had a three hour break at our college classes on Wednesdays and I used to go study stuff being a nerd instead of, uh, you know, going outside or something like that. Right? Um, so if photons have no mass, how is it that they're pushing around satellites? Yeah, right. Okay. So <laughs> most people these days know E equals MC squared. Right? Mm -hmm. That's the, the, the fundamental relationship between energy, rest mass, M zero, and C, the speed line vacuum. But actually, yeah. A more complete version of that formula is mm. E squared equals M squared C to the four plus Rho squared C squared. Mm. Where Rho is now the momentum of the particle and C is speed light vacuum. So even though a photon has a rest mass of zero, it still possesses momentum. This is one of the theories that Einstein suggested. So even though it has no mass, it still has momentum. So when a photon pings onto a spacecraft, it imparts a tiny little push. And when a photon leaves a spacecraft, like emitting some heat or a radio wave, as that photon leaves it, there's a recoil force. You know, it's Newton's mm. equal and opposite reaction force. Right. But again, that sounds very esoteric, and you might think, well, what possible difference could that make? But you know, I, I've built much of the last 20 years of my work with the Air Force and with NASA and the European Space Agency on the fact that photons push stuff in orbit. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you have added to my physics knowledge today. <laughs> I hadn't heard of the, uh, the deeper level theory that has been worked out yet. So in your LinkedIn description, in, in your uh, kind of summary of who you are and what you do in that, you mentioned very early on this thing called antenna thrust. And so I was like, what is that? Because I'm curious that I started Googling around and I found something called thrust bearings. But I really have no idea what this is. So what is an antenna thrust and why is it important to you? Yeah, well, let's start with how you figure out where a spacecraft is in orbit. When you want to calculate how, how something's moving in space, then a major part of that is to write down equations that describe all the forces that act on the spacecraft. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, a procedure called integration in mathematics, numerical integration, where you essentially, if you've got a, a differential equation that describes how something is changing, you can determine the state of the thing itself by integrating those equations. So where orbit determination of the spacecraft is concerned, you try and write down equations describing all the forces, and then you integrate them twice to get position. So the derivative of position is velocity, deriv derivative of velocity is acceleration, scale the acceleration by the mass, and you've got the force. So we start with equations describing forces, and we end up figuring out where the thing is in space. So the better you can write those equations, the more accurate those equations are, the better you can work out where the spacecraft is. So we need to figure out all of the significant forces acting. So we've already established that photons, you know, leaving a spacecraft in the form, say, of a signal, a transmitted carrier wave, for example, because the satellite's doing some ranging and wants to transmit the signal down to the Earth, which we pick up. So the satellite is kind of pumping out this energy. So for a GPS satellite, for example, they throw out about 100 watts of energy. So, you know, think of a 100 watt light bulb on a satellite 20,000 kilometers away, you know, three and a half times the radius of the Earth out in space, and it's shining down at 100 watts. That's the energy in the carrier wave signal that carries all the information you know, that we use with GPS. Now, the thing is, because those photons are systematically 
push, pushing down towards central mass of the Earth, that means there's a recoil force in the mm -hmm. opposite direction on the spacecraft. And that's what we call antenna thrust. Ah. And um, it wasn't an idea that many people took seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but now, for example, all of the scientific processing of uh, GPS satellite orbits that's done by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and, uh, and MIT and those kind of people, they take into account this effect because it's systematic and it shunts the satellite's position in, in space. Okay, so it's, it's yet another factor that needs to go into those calculations to figure out <laughs> where your satellite's gonna be because mm -hmm. it's literally pushing itself away. Interesting. Okay, so there's the Space Geodesy and Navigation Laboratory at UCL, um, and you've been running that for a long time. Did you create that or was it already existing? There was a, when I first joined UCL, I, w I joined a group that was working primarily on sort of GPS technologies, and then as I became uh, a bit more senior, I sort of essentially built the group um, from a certain point forward in time. So, yeah, so it's my, I don't know offspring of some kind yeah. <laughs> right and obviously been around since before 2011 because you had pictures of students and that in there um and there's i guess graduate students or phd students rolling through this thing yeah that's right so it's a okay. it's a kind of standard common or garden university research group so it has academics you know a few um you know professors and associate professors and assistant professors has postdocs and has PhD students, and then sometimes you know master students will do their dissertations with us, that, that kind of thing. So um, generally, it's centered around various applications of space technology. So there are, there are lots of problems in the scientific science and engineering domains that rely upon space technology. We kind of work on those, and we work with space agencies, you know, governments, the military, and commercial companies. Okay. If you want to talk about a project or two that you have the, the approval to talk about, because I'm sure there's security and compliance issues in that, that'd be great. Give us a yeah, flavor. So, yeah. So, um, I mean, things happening going on right now. Uh, so we're working on Galileo, which is a European mm -hmm. sort of version of GPS, um, which um, that's uh, primarily with the European Space Agency. So that's working on dynamic models for, for those spacecrafts. And uh, we have a project uh, with the US Air Force, which is called Track Custody Geo, which is all about trying to uh, identify and follow the trajectory of your own very expensive assets that you've got flying around um, you know, at the in the communications satellite belt, which right. is about 36,000 kilometers away. The difficulty there is that things are far away, and um, the primary way you've got of, of observing them is with a telescope. Mm -hmm. So you have these little bright dots in your field of view of the telescope and you want to know is that bright dot is that my my bird there and that other one that i see maneuvering over there is that doing something nefarious or is it moving in that way just because that's a natural uh, natural trajectory huh. so but why that's important is because at some point if somebody is doing something you know, if there's a bad guy out mm -hmm. there you want to figure out um are they doing something deliberate or is that just, am I seeing something unfolding and I'm misinterpreting it? Hmm. At some point, somebody's got to phone the president and say, do something about this. Okay, uh, so a little scary. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's like basic things like, like the difference between detection and tracking, right? This is something that I picked up from, from Dr. Marie Bajaw, which sound, it sounds so straightforward and it, you don't really think about it unless you're, you're you know, involved with this stuff every day. 
Uh, and there have been a couple of companies, uh, Clinton Clark was a guest who I had on, um, that, that's with the company that does high altitude detection and they're watching all the time with telescopes and that. I am curious, we've, we've talked about this and, and you just mentioned it, um, you're, you're doing spacecraft orbit determination and prediction and, and measuring of GPS data. So what kind of data and tools are you using to be able to collect and process this stuff? Because you don't have your own telescope network, I imagine, or data science department, <laughs> like yeah, we do. Yeah. So, um, so for what we do, there, there are two kinds of data, so to speak. Mm. You know, there are, there's data about the spacecraft themselves, structural mm -hmm. information, what it's made of, what the materials are, what they're flying on the spacecraft in terms of instruments, how its attitude is controlled. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you could also say, telemetry from spacecraft which comes down and tells you stuff about you know where is it what's it pointing at uh how hot are its instruments those kind of things we use all that in the process of building these equations that help us you know predict and model satellite structures the second thing is, is various forms of ranging which which are carried out from the earth to the spacecraft or from the spacecraft to the earth those kind of things so those, those are measurements now um we can get measurements directly from a telemetry stream from the spacecraft yeah. okay. so we have some arrangements with commercial with companies the operator yeah. and the data comes straight in or um there's a big organization called the igs international gnss service which is run out of um, nasa jpl hmm. um, and um it's um um its job is to run big networks of uh, permanent occupied tracking facilities and they pull data down and um, make them available in quasi real time actually from these big networks all the way around the earth. So there are actually thousands of these tracking stations and such data is actually publicly accessible to almost anybody. And as a resource for research, it's relatively untapped. So I'm on the governing board of the IGS and the governing board of a similar um, organization called the IDS, which is the, 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 the International Doris Service which mm -hmm. is the, the, the French Space Agency's uh, satellite tracking system. So okay, and so that's where the data comes from, right? And so the students in the, the lab are doing the data processing or do you have a kind of a continuous program, I guess, set up for doing that that's been operating for years now? Yeah, so we, we've mostly built our own in-house software, which is kind of coded in, in, in C++, and we've, we've built that from scratch uh, from a long, long time back. Um, and we kind of add to that um, periodically. But we do use uh, other people's tools. Yeah. We, one important distinction about um, my group is we're not, we don't do operational work. So we don't okay. do work on a day-to-day -day basis where somebody is like waiting at like four o'clock in the morning <laughs> and you know, going, have you processed today's run? You know? So we are, um, we develop mathematical models, which we then provide to people like the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and they then use what we produce in their operational um, work. Okay. Which now, is scary. You don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> right. Now, I have interviewed a fellow, and this episode um, has not come out yet as we're recording this, but it will be coming out this Thursday. So it'll be out by the time our episode comes out here. Uh, and I interviewed Luke Mazenob, who's with uh, Oracit and CS in France. And so I'm curious, this is a dumb question from my dumb perspective, right? What is the difference between a low level dynamics uh, platform like Oracle and what you're doing? Mm, okay, so 
it's horses for courses, right? <laughs> so, you know, if you just want to design a mission, if you just mm -hmm. want to design a mission to do something fairly crude, you know, you just want to know that it's going to have a repeat pass over the over the earth at a certain, yeah. certain then you can get away at the design stage, even with say a, a Keplerian model, which just means that the two body equations, the mm. of the earth is a point mass and the satellites in space, and you can learn an awful lot. And to be honest, that in itself is quite complicated. Mm. However, the, the scientific requirements of many missions now are actually to know where the satellite is in space at the level of a few centimeters or even down to one centimeter or even try to get mm. below one centimeter accuracy in space. Now that might seem a crazy proposition, but for if you're measuring, for example, global sea level change over mm. decades, then you need that level of, of orbital accuracy. So it's all to do with um, how hard you're trying. Mm. So if we put, to try and put this in perspective, um, if we were to actually sort of put down on paper the equations that we, are, we started writing these equations down, then you'd still be writing 500 pages later. Mm. You'd just have an, an immense amount of information. So, um, so for example, if you're doing sort of a GPS orbit prediction, and, and you know, it's done very, very, in very, very detailed dynamics these days, that level of sophistication is what's in the operational uh, software. So, um, you know, so, um, and again, it might seem uh, crazy going, you know, why do we need to know where a GPS satellite is at mm. the centimeter level? But in fact, um, we rely upon technologies like GPS to define what we call the global reference frame. Mm -hmm. So there are various things like measuring sea level change that require us to have a coordinate system on the Earth that can measure these tiny signals. And so right. things like GPS support the, the, what we call a reference frame. You can think of it as a coordinate frame if, if you mm -hmm. like. So plate tectonics, the earthquake cycle, monitoring volcanoes, all those require this very, very precise scientific measurement system. And GPS is part of that. Okay, and you cannot get that level of detail from uh, ORCID. Okay, I'm not going to say what ORCID. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, but you know, the, the thing is that uh, the software libraries to do all this stuff mm -hmm. are pretty broadly available. Like, you know, my group, we work openly. Mm -hmm. So if people want to upgrade their software to something much more right. sophisticated, we tend to share that stuff freely. It's okay. Yeah. You know, you know what capabilities you have, so you could speak to that. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's, let's get specific here that I've got a question here about you worked with the ESA to develop force models for the Galileo and Sentinel one missions. And so I'm curious how the force models you developed impact the success of missions like those. Hmm. Okay. So we just had our a sort of final technical meeting for that, that project as a five year project. With the European Space Agency, um, mm -hmm. and um, I can't really say how 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 successful it was, except mm -hmm. that I'll just go. It was that successful, right? So that that you know the the aim was to try to get to sort of sub centimeter orbital accuracies. Mm -hmm. um, so what I can say is we had we computed two years of orbits for every satellite on on, on orbit. So about you know twenty odd satellites, twenty years. We checked the accuracy of those computed orbits using lasers, firing lasers on the surface of the Earth. And over the two years, um, we are achieving an orbital accuracy of around about one centimeter for the entire constellation. Okay. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first. And that requires speed. 
Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady, frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on, but business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk, but there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. What, what do you find is like the limiting factor for, for you, for data collection or accuracy? Like what, do you, what are you waiting on usually? Yeah, so for many years, it was to get sufficiently detailed information about the spacecraft itself. It used to be that people were very cagey about saying, you know, okay, we've got this, this, this amount of, um, you know, this grade of, 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 of um, MLI, which is a multiple layer insulation on the spacecraft. People were apprehensive about telling you that because they didn't want the radar profile of their spacecraft to be revealed back that kind of thing. So we've had various, um, we're now much closer to the various space primes and we have a good relationship with them and they will give us the information We'll then compute the models, which are just a set of equations, which can't be reverse engineered to reveal the structure of the spacecraft. Okay. Um, but that took years to kind, of, to kind of get there. So we're past that now. And so um, people at the European Space Agency are much more um, open to working with us because they want to achieve these, uh, you know, you could say extreme levels of orbital accuracy. Mm-hmm. So one, that's one limit then is always knowing enough about the spacecraft, right? Mm-hmm. And we're kind of past that now. It was a long fight, many years. Then finally, it's a problem of how do you determine what is this orbital accuracy? You end up going, you know, well, how do we know that we've done as well as we think we've done? And we do that by firing these lasers, the spacecraft. There's a whole series of stations around the Earth, which are called satellite laser ranging stations. And they've got a, a, a ranging precision of about two to three millimeters. So these guys can fire a laser from the surface of the Earth and they can range to a spacecraft that could be, you know, 30,000 kilometers away and they can determine that range for precision of two to three millimeters, which is crazy, but they do. Right, right. That ray is just not diffusing very much. It's going yeah, right out there. Been, yeah, yeah. And those, those people have been, that kind of technology has been in development by, you know, supported by NASA and, and, and agencies around the world for decades. Hmm. So it's been a long time um, in the making. And it's a part of this whole network of infrastructure, spacecraft on orbit, space agencies, um, universities, who all work together to achieve the, the, the science that comes out of this. So it, it's, a, it's a great human collaboration story, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's to get people to relax and go, look, everyone can see everything else now, <laughs> you know. We, we know what, it's, what it is, what that's up there, and, and maybe we don't need to know everything about what it's made out of. I like the, the reverse engineering is not possible. I think that, yeah. is, that is a very relaxing thing. So I'm going to read this question out because there, I want to make sure I get it right. So you were a principal investigator on an ESA project to design a combined navigation and communication system for manned and robotic landings on Mars. 
That sounds like a lot. <laughs> That's a big scope. Uh, what, what outcomes did you reach that you can discuss and, and what was maybe the most challenging or surprising element of that project? Yeah, well, first of all, it was an amazing project to win. It was just wonderful to do that. And I think maybe the first thing is that when you get into a project like that, you, you have these preconceptions about what you think the problem's mm -hmm. gonna be and what you think the nature of designing a system for something like Mars is. Then three months in, you learn so much, so fast, it's quite, quite incredible. I remember looking, looking back at our proposal document and going, I can't believe we won that, but you know, but there we go, you know. <laughs> Come the other side. So first thing, simple thing. So you've, the ambition is to have uh, pressurized vehicles landing on Mars, which, where a couple of astronauts get into that pressurized vehicle and they kind of drive 10, 20, 30 kilometers away from the landing base. So the first thing is, is how far do you have to move from the landing base before you can't see it anymore over the horizon? In other words, what's your, your line of sight? So one of the first things we did was worked out if a, an astronaut is standing on the surface of Mars, and let's assume that it's a, it's a spherical planet um, with even terrain, then how far can they see? And actually, you know, in, in, uh, in Imperial units, it's about two miles. It's about sort of 3.4 kilometers, which is not far at all. Yeah. So the point is that very quickly, everything, all your points of reference are over the horizon. Hmm. And so you need ways to have... Um, some way of determining where you are. Now, there's a great story behind this, actually, which is that in one of the um, late Apollo missions, when they first had a rover, they took it to the uh, edge of a crater. They went down into the crater, mm -hmm. and they were, you know, collecting some samples. And then they had to walk back. And there's this moment of panic when right. one guy looks at the other and goes, "Which way was it back?" Right. In, in a crater, you just see the. Yeah. the, the you know the the the, the, rough the edge, yeah, and you can't see you can't see where the rover vehicle was, and so they had to make a call because it was a hard regolith. They couldn't see footprints, mm -hmm. and they just huh. had to make a guess about which way was back. So, you know, we were told all this when we started the project, and it was mm -hmm. like a sense of going, "Wow, this is a really there's a high level of responsibility here." I guess the second thing that that we learn about it is that um, uh, it's how to make a system resilient and, and redundant and, and reliable. Because you, need, you know, all these engineering things, stuff goes wrong. And whenever mm. you do anything in space, you learn that what you thought was gonna happen certainly didn't happen the first, the first time. And so you need a, um, a resilient system to do that. Um, but having said that, um, we had access to this high resolution stereo camera um, terrain model of, of, of the landing sites. And we sort of used that to work out where we put beacons on the surface and we sort of simulated the, what we call the bit loss error rate. So you're transmitting a signal from these beacons which you're using for ranging to work out where you are. And um, we used tools that designed for mobile communications on the earth to simulate that on, on Mars. Mm. So we worked with a company called British Aerospace here, by the way, they did the communication part of this and they were very, very smart, smart guys, very, very experienced that made a lot of it easy for us. So perhaps the, um, maybe it's worth saying what, what was the basic navigation technology that, that, that we designed for this. And that was based upon micro-miniaturized atomic clocks. So when we did that project, um, NIST in, um, they're in Colorado, right? They'd just done some characterization of these tiny little atomic clocks. Now, we've already talked about how ranging is based mm -hmm. upon on timing. So the idea was to have 
these micro-miniaturized clocks inside the beacons, which are transmitting the ranging signal, and the astronauts are wandering around with bits of kit on their rover vehicles and on themselves with a clock as well. Hmm. And they're using the, those signals going between the two to help measure their ranges. But the but is that you've got to calibrate the drift of the clocks. Now we uh -huh. can do that, yes, in a very straightforward kind of way, but when you're on Mars, it's different. Right. So what the European Space Agency gave, they gave us a budget and said, you can have one or two orbiters in space. And so what we did was we, we kind of calculated the way in which the clocks would behave based upon the NIST uh, characterization of the clock, and then worked out uh, a design of the orbits of the spacecraft going around Mars so that periodically you could do time transfer between the central base and, mm -hmm. and the people in, that one in, in their own um, where they were. And that meant you could reset the clocks periodically and keep them within specification. Mm -hmm. But that was all, you know, it was really interesting. Um, and um, yeah, of course it was challenging, right? Yeah. It, was, it was challenging, but, but we know a lot about Mars now. You know, I mean, interesting things are, for example, there's no magnetic field, right? You can't have a mm -hmm. compass, right? And uh, you might be in a dust storm and you might be in some very, very crazy terrain. You know, something like um, Holden Crater is, is, is mm -hmm. quite flat, and, the, and, the, and some of the plains are really flat. But some of the places where we want to go, they're like the Grand Canyon plus plus. So it's a tough environment, without a doubt. Right. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot that went into that project. The first thing I was thinking of is you need a way of leading, leaving breadcrumbs so that the astronauts could find their way back, or you need a GPS system for Mars, which is kind of the approach you went. And it's, there are some points of failure in that too, the solution, right? If something breaks, if the orbiter breaks, you can't, you're gonna drift, right? The timing is gonna drift. So huh, that, is, that is complex. Uh, yeah. what, what is the next step after that then? Do they have to come up with a mission to actually make, uh, make products like that to send there um, with astronauts and, and a rover and it all, I guess, becomes this huge expensive project. Well, so the thing is, these, these things have huge lead, lead times. Mm -hmm. you know, such things are planned many, many years in, in advance. So um, a project like that, that was, that was aimed at launches between 2030 and 2040, for the, 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 those, those, kind, those kind of missions. So there's a lot of future scoping goes into this. It's looking at, you know, as part of the project, we looked at various quantum technologies, for example, that were starting to emerge and say, you know, okay, so 10 years from now, what level of technology maturity will there be? But also, there are some people who their job is actually the future scope requirements of missions, and then to actually encourage commercial companies or, you know, research groups to develop such technologies. So sometimes you just have to think in an imaginative way going, what would we like or what, mm. we, what are the requirements? And some of it just looking at trends and technology and saying, well, you know, like quantum is a huge thing these days. Mm. And, you know, there are lots of big things that are said about quantum. We were there with things like nanotechnology before. We were there with cold fusion before. Mm. So you know, there has to be a certain hard realism that goes into it as well and say, okay, what's the baseline technology that we feel we can guarantee? Mm. And then try and build out a bit from that. Yeah. And there might be some great discovery, but banking everything on that is kind of a dumb idea. <laughs> so let's move into space situational awareness and, uh, and sustainability here. 
um, just before we started recording, we, we got on and uh, looked at a couple of simulations that you were showing me and we'll try and embed those. Uh, we, I'll either have screenshots or the video itself that will overlay over this. It was, it was like kind of what I've learned to expect now, but also kind of crazy at the same time to really see this. You, you recently completed this study for a DSTL on future space populations, and you predicted it out over the next 25 years. So we're, we're looking at simulated launches of these mega constellations. Tell us about that. How did it work? What did you discover? And, uh, and we'll show this on the screen as well. Yeah. Well, so the first thing we did was have to essentially um, uh, review all the catalogs. A, cat a catalog in this business is uh, essentially a, a list of missions when they were launched, when they, when they failed, are they still in space, are they active, are they inactive, who owns them, roughly speaking, what do they do. So we reviewed all the catalogs of everything in space from like 1960 up to now, and then we built a sort of baseline catalog because there's lots of conflicting information in these things, by the way. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's not the case that you can just trust you can pick up a bit of data right. and go, okay, that's real. A Jonathan yeah. McDowell might have a pretty good, a pretty good right. catalog there, but yeah. But, you know, it, it, takes, it takes a fair amount of effort to do that. So we looked at both the space debris and the active satellites and the inactive satellites, and we built a baseline for 2019. And then we tried to look at the, the trends in launches, um, how different nation states behave, what they, what they tend to launch, mm. um, where do they launch those things, um, how long they last on orbit, and so on. And then we had to look at the emerging technology. So the, you know, the principal emerging technology are these so-called mega constellations. That's, the, that's the, the big thing. And we all are aware of that now. now. So the, the big enablers of that is the ability to launch a single rocket body off which you peel 60 odd satellites. And then you've got to populate a single orbital plane mm -hmm. with those satellites, spread them out. And then you launch another 60, another 60, another 60. So um, I sort of dug into the proposed, what's called the FCC firing, Frequency Control Commission, I guess, mm. something like that. Uh, they're the people in charge of saying, okay, you want to launch something and you want to operate at this frequency, we're going to give you this bit of bandwidth and you've got to operate in that. So people who want to do this stuff have to show their hand a little bit and say, okay, we're gonna, we want this many satellites operating at this power and at these frequencies in these orbits. So I dug into the FCC filings for SpaceX and for Blue Origin and for, and, and for a lot of other companies too. What you can see is that in low Earth orbit, so we're talking about sort of 600 kilometers to say 1,500 kilometers off the surface of the Earth, that's the orbital altitude, there'd be something in the next 10 years, easily another 12,000 satellites populating mm -hmm. those orbits. And that's an absolutely huge number. Now the if we can run the, um, the, the films and eventually mm. see them, it's quite shocking, actually. Yeah. And everybody I've shown these simulations to go, how are we going to handle that? Because there's a space traffic management problem, and there's the problem of satellites becoming disabled and spinning out of control. And so one of the really interesting things is we also simulated the debris field out for the next 25 years as well. And so we had to do various... Um, simulations of how a satellite breaks up and how debris scatters. Mm -hmm. And one of the first order things we got out of that is that space debris tends to do two things to first order. One is when a satellite breaks up, the debris stays in the orbit. So the satellite's going around doing this, it's got all that momentum, right? And so that momentum is conserved in those bits. 
But the second thing, because as, does, as the, 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 the orbital plane kind of gradually moves around the Earth, the debris spreads out into the shell. So the two things happen as debris goes into the orbit and then into the shell. Now, all these design constellations, these mega constellations, they're shell constellations. So if we start getting collisions in those shells because the, the, the traffic's being mismanaged, it's going to populate those shells with lots of debris. Now, we have a problem with debris now, but the problem of debris then may be much more serious. Mm -hmm. And there is a thing called the Kessler syndrome, which admittedly is something of a horror movie. Yeah. But you know, the Kessler syndrome does say that once these things start banging into each other and break up, those bits hit other things, and then you get a cascade going out. Right. Right. Yeah. And that was one of the first things I learned about in, uh, in space traffic management. And a former head of the Space Development Agency told me, I am not afraid of a Kessler syndrome. <laughs> so that made me feel a little bit better. But when you see uh, all these dots up there, you know, at all these pieces, um, all I could say is thank goodness for a conservation of momentum. <laughs> things kind of staying in the same place. So very, very cool. Uh, let's finish up with a couple of fun questions here. You and I share an interest in photography. I'm curious what equipment and subjects you most enjoy working with. Okay, well, okay, so I love photography for sure. Yeah. And I, I, partly because the technology is so good these days. When you mm -hmm. buy a camera, it's, it's just extraordinary what it can do. So uh, I kind of experimented with micro, micro four thirds. Uh, and so most of my kit mm -hmm. is, is in, in, in that kind of area. Um, I have some beautiful glass, you know, some, some Leica, Leica lenses. Um, um, and I kind of learned that one of the really powerful things in photography is just buy a good lens, yeah. right? You will not be disappointed by spending money on, on a good lens. I live in central London, and uh, so you know a lot of my photography has to be, uh, you know, the, the sprawling metropolis. Mm. You know, but uh, so I've learned a bit. I was in New York last summer, first time in my mm. life in New York. Wow, what a place! Wonderful place. And I'm really so deeply sorry for the citizens of New York at the mm. moment. It, 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 it's terrible. But my God, what a city and what a photogenic city it is. You know, you, um, so you, you, I remember taking some pictures from the top of the uh, Met Metropolitan Museum, looking over Central Park. That's a great vista. Yeah. But apart from that, um, I also kind of experiment with uh, macro photography mm -hmm. a little. Now, again, really nice lens and just getting up close to plants and, and textures and insects, those kind of things. Yeah, it's fascinating, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I've got the same kind of thing, um, Canon, Sony, mirrorless, micro four thirds, and then the old school DSLR. Um, and... Yeah, my stupid money expenditures are on uh, legacy lenses because I don't mind manual focus at all. <laughs> so I tend to do that. And I started out um, really interested in Zoom. And then uh, over time, your, your, your tastes change a little bit. So I backed out and I started learning, uh, you know, wide lenses. And I've gotten away from that. And I did quite a bit of macro as well. Uh, with bugs and things like that. We had an arboretum in uh, Wilmington that we could go to and you'd usually get some interesting bugs there. And if you have a fast enough ability to focus, <laughs> you'll be able to, to get some good images. So I had a lot of, a lot of fun with that. Uh, I haven't done much in Asheville, but then again, it's springtime now, so I'll probably be out again. But mm -hmm. uh, I appreciate that. We're both Richard Feynman um, fans as well. Uh, my favorite stories from him are from those Los Alamos days where he was good at lock picking and safe cracking in that. And he'd go and break into somebody's safe and steal their papers or add something in there and that. I'm wondering if you have a favorite Feynman story as well. Yeah, I mean, Kirsty, one of my 
favorite Feynman stories is is more about his impact than the man. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a fascinating man, an mm -hmm. amazing guy, great scientist, and you know, most people who've had some experience in physics uh, have read the Feynman mm -hmm. book, physics lecture series. I mean, you know, brilliant exposition. But there's a nice story about a guy who um, um, I think he lived in somewhere like Hong Kong, and mm -hmm. he he was a physicist, and he'd got Feynman's red books. At that time, mm -hmm. there's a lot of tension between um, the, the Mao, Mao regime mm -hmm. and, 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 and the West in, in Hong Kong. And so you get these guys standing on the border in green uniforms, waving Mao's little red book. Mm -hmm. so this guy, who was a physicist, he went up to the border one time, took a bunch of his students with him, was some friends, and they took Feynman's uh, lectures on physics, which are also red, red. and started yeah. waving them in the opposite direction, say, you know, huh. Okay, you know, here's another way of thinking about about the world. Mm. <laughs> very, very good. Yeah, he was a fascinating guy, and uh, yeah. um, and I also like the way with Feynman in that he dedicated his life to science. You know, he was a journeyman um, in, in science, and he um, also perhaps the thing about him is that it was his ability to explain concepts. Mm -hmm. And I want a great test from Feynman that I've tried to adopt mm -hmm. is that he said if he can't explain something to a layman about mm -hmm. what he's doing that means he doesn't understand it himself properly mm -hmm. it's not the other guy's fault they don't understand it it's it's the the failure is in the person who thinks they understand it so i don't know how i came across in this podcast yeah. but, but I, I i i do try to work hard because i find that if you really understand something then you can explain it clearly to somebody else and, and people shouldn't be daunted by by professional scientists, you know, if they don't understand what the scientists are saying. They should think, okay, maybe it's it's the problems with him, not with me. <laughs> right, right. And I think, yeah, based on today and the 2011 lecture that I watched, yes, you've succeeded in in being able to explain complex subjects in a straightforward manner that uh, even this idiot can understand right here. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Well, my guest today has been uh, Professor uh, Doctor. Uh, Marek Zibart, and he is the Professor of Space Geodesy and Director at the University College of London. Uh, thanks for being here. Great, Jason. Really nice to meet you. Um, great talking to you. This is Jason Canning from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released, and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio-only uh, side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists, and so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats, and I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, <laughs> looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and a very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.